0: If you've ever wondered how to raise great kids, well stay tuned, because that's exactly what you'll find out next on Live Happy Now.
1: In a very real sense, raising a kind child, a moral child, is a tougher task that requires being countercultural in a fundamental sense, making deliberate choices that may go against the prevailing
0: wind. Hello, this is Jeff Sanders, and welcome back to another episode of the Live Happy Now podcast. You know, Raising kids would be a lot easier if they came with a handbook, and this week we have the next best thing. World-renowned developmental psychologist Thomas Lacona joins Live Happy section editor Chris Libby to talk about how to raise kinder kids and what you can do to have a happier family.
2: We are joined today on the Live Happy Now podcast with uh, developmental psychologist and award-winning uh, professor of character education, Dr. Thomas Lacona. Um, not only is he all those great things that I just talked about, he's also an author of several great books, including the, his latest, How to Raise Kind Kids and Get Respect, Gratitude, and a Happier Family in the Bargain. How are you today, sir?
1: I'm good, thanks.
2: Okay. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about this topic because I am a father of two young children, two girls. Uh, one is about to be seven, one's about to be two. Um, and my, one of my biggest fears in life, in parenting, is raising an unkind or selfish kid. And I feel like I owe it to humanity to make sure my kids are good people. Uh, Do you run into this a lot? And why is it uh, when you talk to parents and why is it harder than ever to raise kind kids right now?
1: Well, there used to be a, a sense in the culture that we were pretty much on the same page that parents shared certain basic goals for children. They were supported by the schools. Um, uh, religious influences were part of the mix, that there were social norms to which everyone felt accountable and which were were really held in common. And that common ground has eroded over, say, the last five decades at least, such that we increasingly feel like we're in this alone, which is one, one important reason why we need to get together with other parents who, who um, share values and support groups and so on and have a a sense that we, in fact, are not alone. But the culture is a tougher culture. Our kids are bombarded with negative influences. Um, There's much more to monitor as a parent. Um, We can't count on other parents sharing our fundamental values. So in in a very real sense, raising a kind child, a moral child, is a tougher task that requires being countercultural in a fundamental sense, making deliberate choices that may go against the prevailing winds so it's it's tougher than it was when our grandparents grew up and um, even when our when our own parents grew up
2: for sure so what are the most common mistakes parents are making today and how do you how can we avoid them
1: well i, I think that there are three big ones that many parents un- unfortunately make and the first is not really exercising their moral authority with confidence uh, parents ha- have to have the confidence that they do have moral authority, uh, they have a right to be respected and obeyed, and children's respect for a parent's moral authority really lays the foundation for their moral development. It's difficult to teach children anything if they don't listen to you, if they don't obey you, if they don't respect um, the fact that you're the mom and the dad and and you have a, a right to expect obedience from your kids. So that's that's one mistake. What does it look like to exercise authority with confidence? First of all, it, it means to understand that, in fact, that will bear fruit. The research shows that authoritative parents who both love their children and exercise authority in a confident way, set rules and enforce them and so on, have kids who turn out to be more competent and more responsible than kids who don't grow up in that kind of a household. We need to take a strong stance that, conform uh, consistent with our deepest values our our kids will benefit from moral clarity about what we believe what we deeply hold you know do we prohibit um, TV shows and movies and video games that contain sex or graphic um, violence or foul language and so on and why do we find those things offensive and problematic it's important always to explain our stands with reason especially when kids get older and into the teens it's critical that they see our exercise of authority as having a rational basis in a concern for their welfare, not not something that's simply arbitrary. So it's always important to explain why we believe what we do. It's important not to allow disrespectful backtalk. That often starts in the preschool years. You can see it in public places when parents pick up their children at school, kids talking in very disrespectful ways to their mothers or fathers. We need to curb that and give immediate corrective feedback. What's your tone of voice? How are you speaking to me? How can you say that more respectfully so that kids understand that we won't tolerate that kind of disrespect? It means taking the small stuff seriously. You'll have, uh, if you don't correct rudeness or tantrums, for example, in your six-year-old, you'll have a lot more trouble reining in, swearing, and door slamming by your 16-year-old. We need a discipline in a way that really makes kids responsible for their actions, and you can do that by saying, well, what's a fair consequence for what you did? we had this agreement, you were supposed to feed the dog, you were supposed to do this, you, know, you didn't do it, what's a fair consequence? Where they really think about what they did and, and, in a sense, are their own judge and jury. Instead of feeling that punishment is arbitrarily imposed, they see the, the consequence as something that logically follows from whatever they did. It requires vigilant supervision. Where are our kids? Who are they with? What are they doing? Um, the research shows that parents who have more responsible children really watch them like a hawk and it's increasingly important in the current culture where more temptations and pressures confront our children. So that's a big, one big mistake is just not having the sense that you're in charge of the family as a mom or dad and you have the responsibility for guiding your child and you have the responsibility for holding them accountable to your expectations. The second mistake is really thinking you should make your kids constantly happy and, and, doing everything to avoid ever disappointing them. That, that robs children of the opportunity to face the inevitable adversities in life. They need to grow up understanding that life is difficult. They'll have to face disappointments, frustrations, heartaches, and so on. And part of, part of helping them have a sense that life is challenging and difficult is giving them meaningful responsibilities in family life. There's no free ride. Everybody pulls their weight. Kids have chores. Uh, That's their contribution to the family. You don't pay them for that. That's the way they give back in the family. In a lot of families, parents do all the giving, kids all the taking, and the children grow up with a sense of entitlement, and they're spoiled by the time they're they're 10 or 12. And a final mistake is parents are are just not sufficiently intentional about creating a strong family culture. If you really want to be the major influence on your child's character development, you have to decide what do we most deeply believe and how do we want to make that uh, salient for our children how do we want to create a cohesive family culture that pushes back against the negative influences of the wider society that requires a kind of intentionality that many parents unfortunately don't have because they're too busy don't stop to reflect on what they're transmitting to their kids kids get the wrong message for example research shows that uh, whereas parents say they care more about their children's kindness than about their grades When children are asked, they say, well, no, no, my parents care more about my grades than whether I'm kind. So the message isn't getting across and the parents aren't taking the time to create an intentional family culture where the message is clear.
2: Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, positive family culture because in the book you talk a lot about together time and connective family rituals. Um, Why is this so important? You kind of just explain it, but what are some examples of how we can create this positive family culture?
1: Well, you could do that in a in a very deliberate way by having a family mission statement um I recommend a family sit down and just ask you know what what do we want to be as a family? what kind of a family do we want to be and what are our core values what are the virtues we all want to exhibit and hold ourselves accountable to it? here's Here's one family that did that they had kids uh four children who were nine, seven, six, and four at the time and um they called their family mission statement the Davidson Way, that was the family name. And they talked together about what they most deeply believed and then these are the things they came up with. We commit to being kind, honest and trustworthy. We don't lie, cheat, steal or hurt someone on purpose. We don't whine, complain or make excuses. When we make a mistake, we make up for it and learn from it. We work to keep our minds, bodies and souls healthy, strong and pure. We commit to learning and growing in our faith. This was the family that whose religious faith was important in their culture. And finally, we live with an attitude of gratitude. So then that becomes a reference point. You talk about that at the beginning of the week. You refer to it when there's a problem in family life, and it's kind of your family charter that gives you a framework so that you're not constantly making it up as you go. A lot of families don't have any sort of explicit framework, and it makes it much tougher. So that's. That's one way of of creating a positive family culture. And then the connective rituals that you mentioned are extremely important for providing the the glue of the family. They give the cohesion to a family. They create the bonds. They give us the leverage, the inside track, as it were, in a culture where many things compete for our child's values and, and conscience. If the if the bond with us is strong, then negative examples in the wider culture will not have the same destructive influence that they can have if the relationship between parent and child is weaker. So all the rituals in family life, the traditions, the times we spend together, the one-on-one time, the, the, the family things that we do. And interestingly, there's research on alcoholic families that finds that, that in, in some alcoholic families, children do not grow up to have the classic problems of adult children with alcoholics. These healthier alcoholic families did things like make a big deal of birthdays and holidays, go regularly to church or temple together, have meals together, read or tell stories at bedtime. So these connective rituals, in a sense, protect the children against the the worst um, effects of alcoholism in the family. So those relationships, in a sense, provide a foundation for the kinds of moral teachings that we want to do with our kids.
2: Okay. You also talk about something that I think is very important because it's, it's very new to us in uh, this day and age. In fact, Gallup just came out and said 82% of the world has a phone or some kind of electronic screen device. In um, the book, you call it electric screen syndrome. Why should we limit how much screen time our kids are getting?
1: Well, I'm glad you raised that because technology is insidious in its effects. We create technology to increase our control over our lives. It ends up controlling us and redefining how we live. And that's profoundly evident with screen technology. It started with TV, which was really a major cultural revolution. It changed uh, family lifestyles. Kids ended up with their own sets in their bedrooms with no monitoring by their parents. Uh, Together time was dramatically reduced and so on. And now smartphones have exacerbated the problem where kids retreat really into their private worlds everybody's staring at their screens people aren't talking with each other and when you reduce those crucial conversations in family life you impoverish the moral soil in which character grows we, we transmit values to the next generation really through face-to-face interactions and we need to very much protect time for that uh, and and one um, thing in the literature which you know, has caught my attention as a developmental psychologist is this phenomenon that's been called electronic screen syndrome of kids having irritable brains, you know, not sleeping well, uh, not listening, not making eye contact, a whole cluster of symptoms that really can be traced to my screen time. And there's one particular psychiatrist, uh, Victoria Dunkley, who wrote a book called Reset Your Child's Brain, in which he recommends an electronic fast, no screens at all for four weeks, and then hanging tough during that period of time and observing the changes in your child. In the beginning, of course, they fight a tooth and nail and, and complain a lot, but, you know, two to three days into the electronic fast, that, that stops. And then not long after that, you see all kinds of positive changes. Kids' manners improve. Their eye contact is better. They, they sleep more peacefully. Their cooperation uh, increases the, you know, the, there's one, here's a testimony from a mom, who says, my three-year-old went from three to five meltdowns a day to one or less, uh, struggling with transitions between activities and no more struggles of that kind, from aggression toward his one-year-old brother to playing gently and enthusiastically with him, from general instability in his personality, to being much more even-keeled, small things no longer set him off. So parents have observed dramatic changes in their children as a result of a sharp reduction in screen time. And then you can re- gradually restore it and and monitor the effects as you make those restorations. But screens, uh, I think, have uh, pr- created profound changes in family life and also in, in the emotions of our children, especially as they enter later childhood and adolescence, where they become hyper-dependent upon how many likes they're getting on Facebook. And their whole identity hinges on that kind of validation from people they don't even necessarily know or care about, but you know, somebody is evaluating them. Girls start posting hotter and hotter pictures of themselves to just to try to get likes, and our children are, are more anxious and depressed than has been perhaps historically true at any point previously. And, and so, you know, as we need to really step back and take control of media in general and say to our kids, the use of media in the families are privilege It's not a right. It means the parents have the final say and that, We have to use media in a way that really contributes to our individual happiness and welfare and to our happiness and welfare as a family. And taking control of media is just a critical challenge for parents. And and if they do that, they'll find immediate
2: improvements in family life. Well, I can tell you from my personal experience after reading your book, and that's what's so great about um, How to Raise Kind Kids, is there's a lot of applicable uh, tips and tricks in here for people to use right away. And I did it with my daughter with the screen time, and I noticed a, a dramatic difference. Um, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. And well, um, what did
1: you what did you see? What did you notice? Well,
2: she was uh, less tantrums. She was nicer, and she uh, started doing things that were a little more creative, like coloring and uh, nah. things that were more calmer, I guess. But yeah, so I mean, to put it politely, I we say we have a strong-willed child. <laughs> that, uh-huh. She can be very emotional at times. so And that leads me to my next question. How how can we help our children navigate these strong emotions like anger and jealousy? Well, I'm, I'm glad you
1: raised that because we have to realize that we're dealing with human nature, and human nature includes strong feelings. Um, kids are not naturally kind in the sense that, that all we have to do is, is just praise them when they behave kindly and correct them when they don't. There are these strong tendencies in human nature toward toward aggression, toward unkindness, uh, toward competition, toward jealousy. You know, All these things are very real feelings that most of us have experienced, virtually all of us have experienced at some point in our lives and, and continue to experience even as adults. Um, re- regarding anger, kids definitely need coaching. Um, and our job as parents is really to be character coaches, keeping in mind that virtues like kindness and respect and, Self-control are not mere thoughts. They're habits that we develop through practice. That wisdom comes down from the ancient Greeks. You don't develop a virtue without lots of repetition, lots of practice. So we have to teach kids, for example, uh, how to deal with the emotions that accompany conflict. When there's sibling conflict, what do you do with the anger that inevitably arises? Well, you have to find a way to solve your conflicts peacefully. It might mean first calming down, um, work on mindfulness, recommends breathing methods, putting your hand on your tummy and noticing your breathing pattern and, you know, and just taking the time to reduce the arousal, reduce the level of emotion and then you're ready to sit down and talk about, well, what what's your beef with your sibling and how can you solve it in a way that both think are fair. I strongly recommend that parents have a dedicated conflict resolution space in the home. You can put up a poster, or have the kids decorate it, but there are steps that you go through. First, one person tells their feelings and the other takes a turn. And then you say, how can we solve this problem in a way that's fair to both of us? In the beginning, you'll have to stand behind them and coach them through the steps, but after a while, you can observe from a distance. And Then finally, you know, your children will be capable of doing this on their own. And, it, and It's such a real responsibility and authentic responsibility to be able to solve conflicts in family life, uh, which otherwise create unhappiness, and tension in the home. So that's one way to teach kids to, to deal with anger. Anger often arises from conflict. Uh, there are other classic things like when I mean, you count to a 10, if that doesn't work, you count to a 100. There are various ways, but some sort of conflict resolution training and coaching is critical. And then things like jealousy, that stems from the inevitable human tendency to make comparisons. Well, he's got something that I don't have. He gets to do this and I don't. And we need to help our children understand that that privileges and responsibilities vary with your age and maturity. You know, when you're four, you don't get to do what your 14-year-old brother does, and your 14-year-old brother has more responsibilities than you do, although even at four you have some chores that you can do. And and even to help them understand that comparisons inevitably make us unhappy and maybe put up a sign on the refrigerator, you know, no comparisons, <laughs> and have that as a family policy because it's a recipe for being continually discontented. Somebody will always have more. Somebody will always be getting to do something you're not doing. And if you focus on what somebody else has and you don't have, you'll you'll never be happy in life. And that's kind of a philosophy of living that we can share with our children early on and then try to make a family policy out of it.
2: Definitely. So what about the complaining then? How do we cut the complaining and teach our kids to be more grateful about the things that they do have?
1: Gratitude, of course, is an act of kindness, and ingratitude is an act of unkindness. Gratitude is, and we should teach our children what gratitude means, and why thankfulness is, is important, and gratitude is basically feeling and expressing thanks for the benefits we receive. Why does it matter? First of all, it makes us happy. That being, counting your blessings is the secret of a happy life. And secondly, um, you know, ingratitude makes us unhappy. You know, the complaining never makes anybody feel better. We, we sort of have a, self-deception that it will, but when you complain, you just intensify your negative feelings and you end up being more cranky and disgruntled than you were before you gave vent to those feelings. If we want to really cultivate the virtue of gratitude again, as with any other virtue, kids need lots of practice. That means finding those rituals that make it a regular part of family life. So it's not something you do as an occasional exercise, but something you do with a certain regularity that provides the repetition that's needed for habit formation. Simple rituals, for example, to give thanks at the beginning of a meal. If you're a religious family, you can offer thanks to God. If if you don't have a religious tradition, you can still be thankful for the meal that's in front of you. Uh, to do a round of gratefuls at dinner. Uh, our younger son's family does this with his, because he has six children, and they start out by saying, what are you grateful for today? And the kids all take a turn at saying something that they're thankful for or grateful for in the day that they've just experienced. Um, my colleague who uh, runs our character education center at our college, she's the office manager, she she shared uh, a thank-the-cook tradition that she grew up with. She was one of eight children, and her mother worked very hard to put a meal on the table that was nutritious and so on and got the feeling that, you know, she'd like a little thanks in return so she instituted a tradition where everybody said something about the meal that they liked or appreciated. And if there wasn't anything that, that satisfied your taste, buds, you at least said, thanks, mom, for all your hard work in making dinner for us. And that ritualized thanking the mother, in this case, for for the act of love, and for providing a good meal for the family. Um, you can keep a gratitude journal, which many families have found a good exercise, where at the end of the day, uh, you're... Write down three things you're thankful for in the day that's just ended. If your kids can't write, you make the entry for them. And at the end of the week, you talk about what what affected that having us as a family. And then teaching kids to extend gratitude beyond the family to thank their teacher for uh, for the lesson, on you know, the way out of class. To thank the school secretary or custodian for all that they do to keep the school going. Um, many people never get those kinds of thanks for jobs that they do, and it can make make their day if a child takes the trouble to express appreciation. So basically, again, practice, 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 and if you want gratitude to be habit in children, and then the no complaints challenge is a great challenge to do as a family to see if you can curb the complaining where everybody tries to go 24 hours without complaining about anything, and if you slip, you, you might switch your rubber band or an elastic band from one wrist to another or keep a list of your complaints. And at the end you you talk about you know, why there's the temptation to complain, um, does it help or not uh, how can you how can you get it under control and why is family life better and this becomes a philosophy as again it's part of the family culture where kids come to understand that expressions of thanks and gratitude cost nothing, but they do a great deal to strengthen relationships and
2: create a loving atmosphere in the home that's great. I'm definitely going to try that one the um and before uh, we let you go today, we're so grateful to talk to you, but can you talk briefly about a technique you talk about in your book that you yourself used on your family, and it's the back-and-forth questions and why that's a useful tool to get your uh, kids to start talking to you.
1: Well, one of the reasons I think why many families allow screen time as much as they do is that they don't have the art of conversation, and we really need to cultivate that in our own lives as adults and and teach it to to our children, and one way that we did that as a family is simply to do what I came to call back and forth questions, where if I pick my son up for school, for example, I'd say, "Okay, you know what was the best thing and the worst thing about about uh, your day so far?" And then the deal was that he would have to ask me a question. In the beginning, he would say, well, I don't know what to ask you, Dad. I said, well, ask me the same thing I asked you. He said, okay, well, it was the best part and the worst part of your day. And that created uh, a ritual, a tradition that was a genuine conversation. It was an exchange. And he was learning that the art of conversation is really, in large measure, the art of asking good questions. And then you can extend this to the dinner table. Uh, I recommend 40 conversation starters that you can use either one-on-one or at the table, where you might say something like, you know, what was something kind that some somebody did for you today? What was something kind that you did for someone else? Um, what's something you learned today in school or from life? What happened today that you didn't expect? What was an interesting conversation? What's a problem that you're having that the rest of the family might help with? That was a good one. In our, in our home, uh, somebody would bring up something that was a real problem that they were dealing with at school, or I might share something uh, from my life. I was doing marriage counseling one time. The problem was I was going to see a couple where the husband wouldn't say, I love you to the wife. He claimed he, he didn't have to say it. He showed it. He didn't you know, <laughs> drink up his paycheck or gamble or run around with other women. Why should he have to say those words? <laughs> and the wife said, if you know you can't say it, you can't feel it. So we had a family dinner conversation about what I could do when I was going to see this couple 40 minutes after dinner. So there are all kinds of ways of meaningful conversation that, enrich family life that build relationships, give you a vehicle for transmitting your your deepest values. And Without those kinds of conversational exchanges, we, we really are on the sidelines of our children's character formation. Other things will influence them, all the media they absorb, the peer group and so on. We want to be, learn the art of meaningful conversation as a way of giving us a channel to influence our children.
2: Great. Dr. Lacona, it's been great speaking with you today. Thank you for taking the time. The book is called How to Raise Kind Kids, uh, and it's available in bookstores this month. And I can tell you from experience, it has a lot of useful information that I think parents will, will enjoy because, as you know, we don't get a handbook to, <laughs> for parenting. so Right. Yeah. right.
1: It's, a, it's, a, it's an endless learning process, being a parent. It never, never stops.
2: Yeah. Well, again, thank you, and have a great day.
1: Thank you, Chris. My pleasure.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Thomas Lacona and his book, How to Raise Kind Kids and Get Respect, Gratitude, and a Happier Family in the Bargain, visit us online at livehappynow.com. That's all the time we have today, so until next time, this is Jeff Sanders wishing you a great day and hoping that every day you live happy.